And we're back for another episode of Gems and Jokes with me, Ariel Tivon of Tivon Fine Jewelry. Thanks for tuning in again and please remember to subscribe so I don't have to keep nagging you and that way it should just pop up whenever a new episode is ready. So today we're taking a trip back in time or rather we're going to take a look at things from the past and how they play out in today's world. What am I talking about? Honestly I don't even know half the time but in this case we're going to be talking about antique, vintage and collectible gems and jewelry. This category of jewelry probably covers the last century or so or as my kids like to refer to it when dinosaurs dinosaurs roamed the earth or BC before cell phones. Now I'll be totally honest this is a subject I know very little about. For me this ranks right up there with calculus and deciphering what on earth my wife means when she says I'm fine. I've headed into dangerous territory so let's get back on track. For some reason I've never quite deciphered what the secret is to this part of the industry. Yes I get the part where the item has to be old and preferably made by someone famous but for me aesthetic and quality is more pivotal than name. Plus I'm kind of superstitious about old jewelry because jewelry to me has such an emotive side to it and such a personal side to it I've never quite taken to the concept of secondhand jewelry. I know lots of people who love it and the market for it is massive but for me it almost borders on trying on a pair of old underwear from a secondhand store or thrift shop. With that lovely vivid image in mind let's stop discussing what I don't know and let's bring on a guest who does know a hell of a lot more than me. My guest today is Lydia Levy and her family have specialized in amongst others old cut diamonds and collectible jewelry. She's going to help us understand this topic a hell of a lot better than I can. Hi Lydia, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, I have a confession to make for our listeners. I've invited Lydia on our podcast, not only for a depth of knowledge, but also because I regard her as a tough chick and I like tough chicks. (laughs) Lydia doesn't mince her words. So at least you know one thing, you're going to get the truth and nothing but the truth and perhaps even some salty language, which we're hoping for and uh, (laughs) some good information. This is called Gems and Jokes heavy on the joke where this is not a dissertation I keep on telling people this isn't a professor standing in front of people and and giving a lecture we're trying to bring some information but at the same time some entertainment so feel free to say whatever you want okay I will no problem (laughs) oh god here we go right first off like many of my guests you're part of a multi-generational business I know your father well and he's been in the industry for a long time Can you just tell us a little bit about your family history and how they and you came into the jewellery and gem industry? So my father's family originate from Persia and were there since before we would even know records began. And they were gemstone dealers as well as carpet dealers and uh, potentially opium dealers, apparently. Anything that you could can you still Can you still fulfill those orders? Just, Just in case, you know, we might get inquiries. We can do anything at our office, honestly. We're, we're happy to oblige. Persians. Persians are the worst. Um, and they would essentially work the Silk Road. So they went everywhere from as far as China, but mainly they would work between India and over towards Turkey and obviously modern day Israel and they sold gemstones all across the board and were very prolific and had some really gorgeous things from what I've understood. I mean there's a few books written about them and the things that they did and there's some interesting history books that talk about what was called the Jadid al-Islam which were the Jews who lived in Islamic countries and were forced to convert to Islam 
And so they lived and they spoke and they were as if they were a native from there, which because technically they were outside of religion. And my great, great grandfather, who I never got to meet, apparently spoke something like 11 languages, including three Indian dialects. So they wow. were able to do everything, which is kind of amazing. It's a different time. And they did whatever they could to make money. Absolutely. I mean, today you speak more than two languages. People regard you as prolific. So that's incredible. And then, so how did you eventually come in? Is Was it a given? Is it something that you've sort of fell in love with along the way, seeing your family in the business? I would say it's a bit of both. I regularly helped my dad out at the Basel show um, since I was a child, really. I did enjoy it and at the same time hated it as any child would I think there's you know pluses and minuses to everything I loved the jewellery I loved the gemstones but I find and found at the time some of the industry to be quite tricky as I think a lot of I think certainly a lot of ladies in the industry might say that I really enjoyed the selling aspect of things and have always been a very good salesperson in that I'm quite enthusiastic about it I remember the first sale I ever did for my dad. I was about 11 years old and I'd been shipped off to the Basel show to help be an extra body. And both he and his secretary at the time were busy. And this gentleman was outside and he was looking at, we had a display with six Art Deco, big, beautiful bracelets all lined up. And I was a bit of a parrot as a child because like my dad, I do speak a couple of languages. So I was always good at mimicking what people said. And this man was looking at these things and I just went over and I started to say blah, 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 blah. And just repeating everything I'd heard my dad say. And this man looked around and saw this child talking to him and was like, what the hell? And so he went <laughs> and so finally my dad came free and helped him. And apparently he said to him afterwards, I can't believe that your daughter remembered all that information because she sounded like she actually knew what she was talking about. So I guess that's always been a bonus. And uh, it was a gentleman called Nino Scarcelli, who's quite a, a big dealer in New York. And he bought all six of the bracelets. And that was sort of the first bite I think I got of selling that I really enjoyed. Fantastic. Kind of like you also as a kid, my father brought me into all sorts of scenarios. And I think it, it does help today. People are talking about all kinds of things like child labor and all kinds. obviously there's degrees of it. But I think being immersed in it young, you know, you may find your passion, which otherwise a lot of people finish school, finish university and still don't have a clue what they want to do. That was it. I mean, I finished school, I finished university, I was sure I would go into something to do with languages. Although I always loved jewellery, I didn't think that was going to be my path. And I unfortunately graduated university in 2001. And September the 11th happened and a lot of things changed as far as being able to get jobs and the world changed in a day. And I went into an amazing internship in Sotheby's in the jewellery department, which, you know, nepotism has its place. And my dad <laughs> spoke to Daniela Maschetti, who was the head of the department then, or I don't know if she was the head, but she was certainly, a, you know, a major player in the department in the educational side of things as well. And I got did this amazing thing three-month internship and that was it I was you hooked. Were hooked hooked antique jewelry was just 
oh, I saw some fantastic things. You mentioned education, getting an education, but you actually also give courses. And if I'm not mistaken, you actually teach some of the big groups, you give educational courses. I, I haven't done it in a while, but I did used to. I used to, um, for when I worked at Asprey and Garrard, I would write certain training manuals that got used throughout the shops. When I lived in New York, I did it for a number of businesses over there, which was fun because a lot of salespeople are amazing salespeople, but don't always necessarily have the confidence to speak about what the actual items within the piece that they're selling are. The technical knowledge. Exactly. Technical knowledge, gemological knowledge. You know, if you're selling a piece of jewellery that's set with stones, I think it helps to be able to at least know something about what it is that's within that piece of jewellery that you're going to sell. So, I mean, one of the worst things I ever heard was when I was working in a department store in New York and the ring was $25,000 and it was a natural geode and then a ring of diamonds just surrounding it, little pave diamonds. And the salesperson said, well, of course, all the values in the diamonds And this woman looked at him and said, the values in the diamonds, there's like nothing here. And it was this tiny, tiny little frame of diamonds around this sort of incredible geo that was a one-off stone. You weren't going to find this again. So, and I just stood there and I was like, oh my God, please stop speaking. And (laughs) that's where I then started to introduce certain files because I realized that sales were being lost because of a lack of firm knowledge. You don't need a massive amount. You just need some basics and it does help i definitely agree we see it all the time in retail a lot of very key information is missing now let's get on to the main part of this which is the lack of knowledge and the key information that's missing for me it's certainly a world of mystery with regards to vintage and collectible and antique jewelry let's just first start off by defining what actually gets classified as vintage or collectible items of jewelry so vintage and collectible. Collectible can is a broad term that would probably be used for lots of things. But vintage, or should I, let me start the other end. Antique is anything that's over 100 years old. Vintage is anything that's under 100 years old, but still has some age to it. So let's say 20 years ago and upwards. So within the last 80 years, I would classify as vintage. Other people might say something else. Right. But to be antique, you have have to be over 100 years old. Right. That's what my kids I think say, I am. I- but uh, <laughs> yeah, to be clear, old doesn't necessarily mean vintage or collectible. It's like a lesson I learned the hard way when I went, somebody invited me once to one of these markets in London, which was described to me as an antiques market. And essentially what I discovered, it was actually a euphemism for a bunch of old crap, which was being sold off as so-called vintage. So how can one truly judge what is, let's say, old vintage collectible? Obviously it has to have a certain aesthetic to it, but how do you separate the old from the, from the truly collectible? Um, it's very hard to say off the cuff what would be defined. I think if would it you be want... along the lines of that it has to have a name, that it has to be one of the big brand names, like a Van Cleef or Cartier or Fabergé? I mean, look, those are always going to be. That is a collectible item. That is, for me, by definition, a collectible item. But you can also get these really gorgeous pieces of jewellery that will have no name, no hallmark, no provenance to them that will be from the jewel 
Georgian era, which was an incredibly, again, prolific time in jewellery. And so we see a lot more of it coming up in auctions or in antique shops or, you know, even a car boot sale or something, you might find something. I think the thing to look for in jewellery, if you're trying to be a collector, it's education for yourself and to know what you're looking for. Nothing can really teach you that past you actually taking a firm interest in it. No one can look at something and know what it is unless you have a certain degree of gemological background or maybe art and history and antique background. As a lay person, I think if you did want to get into the idea of purchasing something, you can't go wrong with going to the right retailer. So for example, here in London, we have Gray's Antiques Market, which is full of really reputable dealers with really well-priced items. The items in those shops are on those booths and stands and what have you are not overpriced. The dealers in there, they're reasonable in their markup in what they choose to make as a profit. So I think you can't go wrong going in there. They're also happy to talk to you about things and educate you on what it is that they're selling you, which is a real bonus. Again, you know, up and down Bond Street in London, you cannot go wrong with the antique shops there from Bentley and Skinner to the Piccadilly Vaults and all those sorts of shops have got really honest salespeople in there that are going to do their best to sell something to you that not only you're going to walk away with and love, but you're probably going to want to return to them. That's the real ideal in a genuine retail environment is that you create a customer for life. You create someone that will want to come back to you. And if you educate them, if you give them the tools which they can then go out and buy other things, they're going to want to come back to you. So honesty is a massive part of it. There's a lot of dishonesty, I think, can be found in the industry. We know of companies that are creating jewellery in Thailand that looks absolutely spectacular. And you think, I've fallen prey to it. I've bought the wrong things because I didn't look hard enough. And that's on me. That's laziness on my part or getting excited about something. I bought a pair of earrings not long ago at auction. I didn't bother to check the hallmark because I assumed they were a really lovely pair of Edwardian little studs, target earrings. And then when I got them, they had 18 karat gold stamps inside them. Mm. It's more an ode to rather than the actual old piece or the vintage piece. Exactly. And the way it was worded in the catalogue, again, was my fault that it actually said antique style. Right. The clue is in the name. Exactly. Burnt once, not again. You know, you learn from your mistake. Absolutely. That's the way we all learn. Now, there's also some incredible jewellery being created today by incredible designers and craftspeople, including some of the big brands. Are these viewed as collectible or will they be viewed as collectible perhaps one day? Both. Again, it depends on the brand. It depends on what it is that is being sold. So for example, Bulgari have some real iconic pieces that I think even if you buy them today, they will go on to be collectible items in even in the near future. I would say the same with certain Tiffany items. Tiffany has a name that's iconic and world-renowned. It just depends. Cartier, again, are very iconic pieces. Whether or not they'll hold the value that you've paid at 
retail may not be the case. I don't know. It's going to depend on what it is you've bought. Mm. But I think in the future, you might see that they will have a certain value that you'd be happy with, if that makes sense. Rather than if you've paid 20,000 for something, you might not get 20,000 for it in the future, Mm. but you might get 10 and you'll have had years of wearing it and still make half your money back. Right. So overall, good investment. And plus, as you say, at the end of the day, it is also about wearing it. It's about enjoying it. It's not just about collecting it and sticking it away in a vault somewhere. You cannot just buy jewellery for the idea that you're going to make money off it. Even if you bought from someone in a wholesale environment, you can't assume that you're going to make that money back. You should be buying it for a certain degree of romance and love and passion for the item, to be perfectly honest. I think the idea that you're only buying something to see what value you can get from it is a little bit callous and maybe not entering into it with the right spirit. But that's, again, me personally personally speaking so well, i did promise got, people the honest truth want. and nothing but the truth so there you go you got it jewelry is an item of love i mean it really is especially for a lot of ladies most items that you'll receive over the years as you get it will be for a birthday an anniversary an engagement a wedding all these sorts of things and to go into it thinking okay well i've spent this amount of money and therefore i should be able to get it back is not really the right spirit no i agree with you i agree with you completely now we touched on just a few moments ago with regards to some of the big names there are some let's say really collectible items and that really goes back to some of the world-renowned names people like or i should say companies like van cleef and arpels cartier tiffany jar bulgari fabergé but those are truly really sought after and fetch some pretty high prices do you think that's also because in those days when those items were created a lot of the pieces a lot of the companies rather that created them some of those big brands were under family control and in those times when they were under family control the family were really passionate about it. They really put in their love and all their passion into creating those items. Today, unfortunately, and I do say unfortunately, a lot of those big brands have become corporations. Do you think perhaps the modern pieces are not quite as sought after as the old, let's call them just again, using your definitions, the antique or the collectibles? Do you think that's because a certain degree of passion was present rather than today where perhaps it's slightly more commercial because they're corporations um yes i think the word corporation comes in quite strongly there in that what you will see with a lot of the items that if you went up and down bond street or madison avenue or fifth avenue into these shops they are going to be manufactured so they are going to be churning out hundreds thousands hundreds of thousands of the Mm. same exact mount to set the same exact kind of diamonds or colored stones or whatever it is that they're doing even just gold work themselves they're going to be made in a certain way that isn't going to have the same lightness or delicateness or intricacy that a handmade piece of jewelry would so those same shops as you've just said as tiffany and cartier and van cleef are also going to still have in their own workshops men and women creating handmade items and those are the items that i think will be modern antiques modern collectible items 
So sorry, future collectible items, I apologise. I don't think you can compare a standard four-claw, brilliant cut, Tiffany-mounted ring today as you could the same thing 60 years ago, where it probably wasn't being, and I I hate using the word churned out, makes it sound like I'm casting aspersions on the way that they do things. It's There is a demand for it, so therefore they've stepped up to the demand. It's not necessarily by design that they've done it. It is because the world has changed and people want engagement rings, want jewellery, and so they've had to start making more and more of it. And there's no way that you could do that by hand. You are going to have to turn to a manufacturer. No, absolutely. I think just perhaps what I was alluding to was that perhaps in the old days, the jewellers held a little bit more mystique. As you say, it was definitely a lot more handmade product today. Also, technology has changed. It doesn't mean that the the quality is any lower. In fact, probably the quality of manufacturing today is higher than it used to be. But at the end of the day, it's back then perhaps was one of one or one of very few versus today of one of many because, as you say, because of global demand, because of the public's demand and the nature of the business. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The items being made are no, not necessarily better, no worse, but there's just more of them. So there isn't the same cachet to them. Whereas if you find a pair of really fabulous Cartier ear clips from the 1940s, that may be one of a hundred pairs rather than today a pair of Cartier studs or earrings, which would be one of 10,000 pairs. Right. It's simply numbers. It's numbers, it's rarity, it's the way handmade jewellery is simply always going to demand more money for it. Because again, my opinion, I think it's better made nine out of 10 times. Okay. We'll take your word of it. <laughs> so in the preamble to this interview, I mentioned to the listeners that ultimately I don't really get, and honestly, sometimes I don't even like secondhand jewelry. I think perhaps it's because I also view jewelry as a very emotive object. I don't quite like the idea of inheriting, let's call it an inverted commas, the baggage that may come with an item of jewelry. And also some of the time, I guess, I favor the aesthetic over the name because I a lot of the time, a lot of these antiques or collectibles are, let's be honest, they've been through the mill completely. They battered to hell because they're old. And I don't always see the point of buying an old beat up piece of jewelry versus a beautiful new piece. But I know my view is certainly in the minority because in the last few years, we've seen a huge resurgence and great success in the world of auctions and especially some of the big name auction houses. Do you have any view on why that is? I can certainly speak to the last year. In the last year, with everything that's happened in the world, we saw shops close overnight, but there were still people that wanted to purchase pieces of jewellery. And I would say the auction world took over from where retail closed and people started to see things in, you know, online platforms such as the sale room or Invaluable, and they were able to keep buying pieces of jewellery. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an antique piece of jewellery that you're buying. You could put something in that you bought last year, you could stick it in an auction, and people can buy things that are less than a year old at auction if they want to. They can buy things probably that are even modern made, if that's how the person who's selling chooses to purvey their goods. So I can imagine that a lot of the retailers who were immediately shut over 
overnight, put their things into auctions. We certainly did. We took items of jewellery that we ordinarily would have had in a retailer and we put them into auctions to just try and keep ourselves ticking over financially. But we saw some really fantastic figures coming out of these auction houses. We were absolutely delighted. There were multitudinous people bidding on the same item from all over the world. So we saw this movement towards more auction purchasing that, as you said, it has been more prolific anyway over the last few years, I would say, because I think there's been an education that we've seen arise. People love watching things like Antiques Roadshow or all these other TV programs that we see. And they're very informative and they're very exciting. I mean, you know, people turn up with something, they say, oh, my grandma left me this. And suddenly the expert's eyes get wide and (laughs) says, oh, do you know what you've got here? This is worth blah, blah, blah. it's exciting. And I know what you mean about bashed up, but sometimes that bashed up can mean some serious history. And there is something very exciting about history. History doesn't have, again, I understand what you mean about baggage, but history can also be exciting. I recently, one of my neighbours came to me and said, oh, would you mind looking at my grandma's jewellery? And then when he explained to me who his grandma was and this amazing story behind her life and how she ended up in the United Kingdom and all these sorts of really interesting things came out from this discussion that she was a ballet dancer. She was an orphan in India and she was taken, not taken, that's the wrong word, but she was adopted by Sadler's Wells and put into one of their sort of foster care systems and allowed to train as a ballet dancer and was given this amazing opportunity to live in England, having been an orphan in an Indian orphanage in the 1920s at a time where she may have died. And she went on to do very well and she bought herself these very sweet little pieces of jewellery and she had really gorgeous aesthetic. And so when I was valuing these pieces, I was also looking at someone's history and someone's taste and someone's, you know, their life. It was, it was lovely. It was a really sweet little project to work on. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, this is something I've gone and said so many times is that jewellery is like no other product on this planet. There is so much emotion. And as you've just said, there's so much history tied to it. It's unlike... Oh, I, I suppose the closest thing one can get to it is art, but certainly art, I still don't think carries the emotion that jewelry does, that history, those stories that interconnect of passing down from generation to generation. There's nothing quite like it. I've certainly not come across anything that is as emotive as jewelry. Yeah, I think clothing can do. I mean, certain items that you might receive. I've got a really beautiful antique Chinese silk kimono that belonged to my Persian grandmother that I think my grandfather got from a trip to maybe not China, but certainly near the border. The Chinese Wall. The Chinese Wall. (laughs) You know, I think in general, things that get passed down, they will have an emotional attachment to them in the same way that there might be something that you receive that you get handed down that you think, I don't want to keep this because of a negative connotation mm. and so it can get passed on and you can change the luck of an item i think no, I, li- I like that i think that's great because i've always as i said I've, I've never liked the sort of emotional baggage but one of the things that we do for example and i'm not trying to punt my business at the moment but you know <laughs> we do almost restorations or rather than restoration let's call it reinvigoration where often as your uh, tiffany gentleman said all the value is in the diamonds sometimes it truly is in the diamonds or the gems and 
and to breathe new life into it and to create a new legacy, we remove those gemstones or those diamonds and breathe new life by creating a new piece. And the way you don't altogether lose the history, the richness, the value and the stories, you're just creating new a ones. new path and a whole new track for it. So I, 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 I like what you said there. It's actually a new way of thinking about it. Certainly it's changed my mind. And just to come back to something you said about the Antiques Roadshow, certainly massive in popularity worldwide. Do you think that also has to do perhaps not as much, you know, falling in love with the jewelry as true bargain hunting, where, as you say, you know, you've got this item which you thought was worth nothing and all of a sudden, oh, I've got buried treasure and I've got the crown jewels in front of me. Do you think that has a certain cachet? I mean, listen, we value a lot of people's items. We get bought a lot of jewelry and my dad always makes the jokes, oh, everyone thinks they're sitting on the crown jewels and half the time it might be some schmutter that isn't worth anything. But to this person, if there's a certain intrinsic value to it, if there's a certain love for it as well, you can't put a price on that. So I will always do my best to try and soften the blow about what the actual value of an item might be. I've never but... known you to soften it. Blah. I've heard you say this, <laughs> describe an item. This looks like <laughs> shit. What have you brought? <laughs> That's only for you. I <laughs> uh, get the special treatment. Thank you so much. Appreciate You're it. <laughs> there is a certain personal attachment to things and unfortunately what you might have paid at retail or what your mum might have paid or your dad whatever it is however far back we're going what you will get from a wholesaler or from an antiques dealer or even at auction will be significantly less than you've paid for it because the reality is what you pay at retail has a higher value added to it because that retailer is having to put on enough profit that they cover their staff's wages, insurance, rent, security, all the sorts costs of, of running a business. The cost of running a business and the cost of running a retail business are enormous because there are so many moving parts. So you cannot compare what I as a wholesaler would sell to what you as a retailer would sell because you have simply got a lot higher costs behind what it is that you're selling. Right. I'm with you. I'm a big believer in retail. Mm. I think yeah. if you don't have a connection to the jewellery industry, if you don't know someone or know someone who knows someone, you are not going to get your fingers burnt buying at retail. Yes, you're paying a premium for the item, but you are buying what you've been told you are buying if you go to a reputable retailer. To me, I don't think that we can ever discount retail. I think it's a fantastic medium for being able to buy amazing pieces. And also, I'm going to add to that, I totally agree. At the end of the day, we create and supply a lot of fantastic retailers around the UK and in other countries. And really, you're, when you go to a retailer, it's not just about the product. It's about buying confidence. It's yeah. somebody who walks you through, who is there when you need them. If there's a repair or if there's an alteration or even if, whatever it is, they are there to care for you and look after you where trader is there simply to trade. They're not, they can't go th jump through through all those hoops that are required of a retail presence. So certainly, I think a lot of the time, well, most of the time, the, the retailer has its place and it provides a, uh, a, a proper community service. Yeah, and it's a confidence. You're buying the confidence. They're giving you the confidence that what you're buying is exactly what they're selling you. You can't go wrong going to a reputable retailer, in my opinion. I think it's really important. I agree with that. Now, let's go on a tangent for a minute. Within the world of 
these old treasures. We have diamonds, which are known as old cut diamonds. Just tell us what is classified as an old cut diamond. An old cut diamond is one that, again, is an antique cut. So generally would be over 100 years old. It would have been cut by hand. The term old cut refers back to the old mines from India or Brazil, where the stones were being literally cut by, there wasn't electricity, so they were being cut by candlelight. So we see this beautiful look to an old cut that, especially under candlelight, looks exquisite. There's not the same exactness of manufacturing that we see with today's modern cut diamonds, where you can almost feed into a machine to tell you, tell the polisher how to cut the stone to maximize brilliance and fire and proportions old cuts they took a crystal and they did their best to polish it down to a settable stone but without losing too much weight so sometimes you hear these words banded about for old cuts such as clunky or chunky or wonky and you know some people would see those as negatives for those of us who love an old cut I see that as a real positive because it's got personality character there's no two the same it's to me it's a joy i get really excited about old cut diamonds and just picking up about something that you said so modern cut diamonds are cut almost every way far more precision cuts better cuts better facets the technology has come a long way from what it was and yet the value of old cut diamonds actually trades at quite a premium yes why is that also because it's rarity and it's old and you can't get it anymore even though a modern cut diamond may be much sparklier and much nicer Yes, I mean, there is a certain rarity to some old cuts. So for example, type 2A only make up one to 2% of all diamonds in the world. And Golconda mine, which was in India, are type 2A stones. Type 2A simply means that there is a lack of nitrogen within the diamond's chemical composition. And they'll be normally, they'll be devoid of any impurities and generally colorless as well. So for example, the Queen's diamonds, the Cullinan, the Kohinoor, those are type 2A Golconda diamonds. And that is as rare as, pardon my French, rocking horse shit, quite frankly. You're (laughs) not going to find them anymore because the mine doesn't, as far as I'm aware, doesn't produce anymore. As far as old cuts holding their value, again, in the higher colours and the higher clarities, people weren't fussed on colour and clarity in olden times. They just bought diamonds for the sake of buying a diamond. So you didn't worry about what colour it was. You didn't worry about whether it had a big glitz in it or anything like that. It was something that was so highly valued that you bought what you could. So today, if I've got an H color VS2, let's say old cut diamond of almost any size, to get an H color is rare. Mm. Really, most old cuts tend to be JKL, even lower and more yellowish for people who don't know the colors. A lot more yellow, a lot more yeah. dark in tone and hue. Dark in tone and hue. There'll be inclusions that ordinarily people today might say, oh, no, no, I wouldn't buy that. It is a matter of taste. There is no knocking the modern brilliance of modern diamonds and the way that they look and the precision. There is a beauty to them and there is a place for them. But there's something about an old cut where if you buy 
one stone, it's highly unlikely that you'll ever be able to find another stone that's identical to it. You might get something that's close. And we have this joke that we say, oh, with a head in between, it's almost the same. So Mm. you're putting a pair of earrings on. Who cares whether they're identical? But it's not everyone's taste. And I think it's a very specific market that does love it. And I think people, as you said, are growing in appreciation for it. So for me, that's joyous to see. And also the old cuts are the precursor to the modern cuts we see today. They were cut by hand. They were clunkier and chunkier, but their faceting style is what has led to our modern brilliant cut diamonds. So an old European cut diamond, which is an old round cut, is simply the precursor to a modern round brilliant. So their history lends to our modern day designs. So it's paying homage, really. I think so. I'm passionate about them, so I can witter on for hours about how much I love them. (laughs) But it's not for everyone. You know, some people want that scintillation. Other people like the larger faceting. I mean, that's the thing. There's less faceting generally on old cuts. So you see more into the diamond. It's more... The windows are bigger. The windows are bigger. The the facets are bigger. There's a lot more of the actual crystal being shown than there is just what it returns to you. Right. I'm with you. I remember a story that goes back a few years when Graf bought, it was then called the Wittelbach Diamond. Now, for those that don't know, the the Wittelsbach Diamond is one of the most famous diamonds ever. And it's the chief rival to the Hope Diamond in terms of its gorgeous blue hue and size. The story goes like this. So the diamond makes its way from India to Europe during the 17th century. It makes its way through several royal hands from the King of Spain to eventually the Royal House of Bavaria, whose name was Wittelbach, hence the name. Then in 1958, it goes on auction at Christie's in London. And shortly thereafter, it disappears. Then it re-emerges for a short time, only to disappear again until 2008, when it then comes up for auction again and gets bought by Graf for just over $23 million. But here's why I'm bringing up this story, because I guess this perhaps ties into a lot of what you've said about as far as the allure of old gems and in terms of appreciation. So it gets bought by Graf and it weighs roughly about 35 carats odd, and it's a grayish blue hue. Graf decides he's going to recut the stone. Unknown to everybody else, he's actually worked out with his team that if you recut the stone, it will actually improve both the clarity of the stone from a VS to an internally flawless, but also it's going to improve the color from a gray blue to a fancy deep blue. Now, the world of diamond historians were completely up in arms when he decided to do this. They say Graf ruined the legacy of the stone. In my eyes, as I said before, I think he breathed new life into it. He continued the legacy in a brand new way. So taking this whole story into account, do you think these stories, this history, the pedigree, this is what people buy into when they buy antiques, the vintage and collectible jewelry? Yes, I disagree with you, unfortunately. I think what he did was borderline criminal. I understand why he did it. And I think, again, this is why there is a certain rarity to old cut diamonds is that so many dealers get an old cut diamond and repolish it into something modern and brilliant to improve the colour, improve the clarity, improve the cut, get a GIA certificate on it or whatever certificate they want, and therefore sell it for what they see as a higher value. But you are destroying history. The amount of stones that we, 
are told about, particularly from dealers in places like Antwerp, where they say, oh, no, well, I just recut an old cut into a modern brilliant. And it, it breaks my heart because you're taking away the opportunity for someone to own something that was cut in a certain way because that's how it was supposed to be cut. Its history has been erased mm. by polishing that away. And yes, he sold that stone for, I think it was $80 million or something. That's the, the price tag that I think has been banded about. So he's made his money, but his reason for purchasing it wasn't because he was buying a piece of history. It's because he wants to make blooming money. That's He is running a business, but at the end of the day, I think there was a quote, and forgive me for anybody if I, if I misquote, I'm paraphrasing, but I think the answer that was given at the time was, I am not a historian, I am a jeweler. Yes. Again, I suppose it's whether you like it or not. As you say, you may have lost some of the history. In my opinion, as I say, I think he breathed new life into it. But then again, I do see your point in terms of there wasn't anything wrong with it. There wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> damaged. I can understand repolishing an item where there's a certain amount of damage to it. There are dealers yeah. that wouldn't dream of doing that. Yes. There are dealers that will leave any natural that they see, any nibbled girdle, anything like that. They don't believe in touching an antique diamond, and I understand that point too. But I think there's nothing wrong with improving, let's say, a flaw to a diamond whereby it needs a little touch up. But I think to actively change the diamond in the way that he did wasn't improving it. That was changing it. Maybe just to his credit, I don't know him, but obviously I think the world over, everybody knows the quality of his diamonds and, and his jewellery. Maybe he's just a really OCD guy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe he looked at it and said, I can't live with these angles they're just not straight i've got to i've got to sort them out you couldn't sleep at that maybe maybe I'm it's sure, just down to ocds i'm sure that's absolutely it then i think let the people buy it that would keep it as it is you wouldn't paint over the mona lisa because you didn't like the colors Good way of looking at it. Do you know any <laughs> other such stories where things like that happened, where people found these incredible pieces of history and then decided to sort of modernize them or almost? I don't know of anything specific. I've seen a number of pieces of jewelry come over our desk where you can see that something has been changed or altered or repaired, for want of a better word, or stones have been removed from an antique piece and replaced mm -hmm. because they wanted that stone out of it. And you can absolutely destroy something that would have a certain value had it been left in its original form. So, for example, a signed piece by Van Cleef or Cartier or Tiffany, mm -hmm. and then replaced with a stone that's so glaringly, obviously not the original stone. You've immediately slashed the actual value of that item as a, an auctioneer would look at it. So it's like putting a, a set of Goodyear tires on an old vintage car. It doesn't yeah, look right. It's not right. It's you should, not right. You should do the history historical research to keep it in its way if you don't want anything to do with history and if you are just a jeweler and you're not a historian why are you butchering a piece of history i leave that to the public to decide <laughs> by, by the way we, we spoke about old cut diamonds is there such a thing as old cut gemstones um, yes, the cutting on them will be different to what we see in modern brilliant gemstones where there's more fasting on the pavilion or on the girdle. There is a certain thing. So we can look at gemstones. Older gemstones will have what's called a bruted girdle mm -hmm. or a polished girdle in the sense of coloured gemstones. Whereas modern day, just speaking about, sorry, old cut diamonds, maybe you can tell where an old cut diamond has been touched up because it will have a faceted girdle. So there'll be lots and lots of tiny fat 
mass, it's polished onto the girdle. And that, again, is to improve the colour yes. and clarity sometimes. So you can tell when someone's over fussed with an old cut. I think with older coloured gemstones, again, you'll see a lot less faceting, mm-hmm. which again, I love. The very minimal faceting on a gemstone. And you'll see often these gemstones will have big tushies, as I call it. So a big pavilion. Yes. Where, again, they're just trying to retain the weight rather than... But that's even today in modern cuts, to be fair. Yes, Yes. true. But the one thing I think if we can talk about one benefit of, let's call it the antique or collectible gemstones, in those days, there was a lot less risk of the treatments that are so prolific today in terms of enhancing the color of a stone and changing the color of a stone. Chances are they were more natural, the colors. Absolutely. You, I think, I don't know exactly when the heating process came in for colored gemstones, but I think it was around the probably the early part of the 1900s. And so you start to see gemstones being heated in countries like Thailand and India and enhancing the color in that sense. I'm not adverse to that. I think it has its place. But once you start seeing treatments that involve impregnating stones with foreign substances to improve the clarity, that's where you see what I feel is a negative side to the industry. Well, um, absolutely. It, you're essentially creating a synthetic. You, As you say, with heating, really all you're doing is recreating what nature does anyway, but in a lot shorter period. And I think that's been recognized for a long time. It's not really seen as treatment. It's rather just heating, whereas treatment is, as you say, is including a foreign chemical or a foreign composite into it. And you're actually changing the chemical composition of the whole stone. It's now something completely different. You couldn't call it a sapphire or a ruby if you're really being truthful, it's now actually a composite of a number of materials that should just never be there. So at least with the old stones, the allure is that it's all the more natural, if one could call it that. Absolutely. you It won't be as fussed with. I mean, again, we see unscrupulous people taking things like old stones and fussing around with them. And if you don't have the correct gemological tools to check for it or know what you're looking for, which is why people like us do go on gemological courses to try and learn so that when we're looking at something you know if you're out buying something you don't have a microscope with you you can't possibly know what to look for but we know certain signs that will tell us whether something has had something done to it that Mm. we would then want to purchase right but the way things have moved now it's almost gone beyond that so for example we've just invested in a tester diamond tester that will tell us whether it is lab grown because without a laboratory to hand none of us can tell what's lab grown And apparently there are people polishing stones to look like older stones that are lab grown stones. Hmm. So it's an unscrupulous business and you have to be careful in it, which is... Well, I think it's actually, I I disagree with that. I think there's a lot of self-policing within the industry, but there are, unfortunately, there's always the few that spoil the broth. That's the part of us testing and us on behalf of our customers and the final consumers of double checking to make sure that we are selling things that are genuine, that we've tested or that we've had checked. So I think overall, the, the business is actually has a lot of scruples and a lot of honesty. But unfortunately, we have to all play our part in policing that to make sure that the few people who like to play games are caught out and don't really reach exactly. the end consumer. No, I do agree. I meant more that there are elements of our industry that can be nefarious and that's sad. And yeah. like you say, then there's us who hopefully step in between 
and catch that before it goes any further. Absolutely. So finally, bringing things back to current times in the world of auctions and antiques and collectibles, we've been in a world of pandemic and online auctions have become a big thing as we've already discussed and mentioned. How does one then go about judging the jewelry, which to me has always been a very tangible thing and for me personally, I've never truly judged a gem or a piece of jewelry without holding it, without looping it, without you know laying eyes on it really to judge its true quality. So in a world of online and coming back to the online auctions, auctions have done tremendously well, as you say. But how does this work despite the fact that one has not been able to lay eyes on it physically? It's tricky. You have to trust in the auction house that you're going to and to the expert that you're speaking to, that they will guide you in an honest way. From my experience, most auction houses are honest to almost a fault. If I've ever bought anything from abroad where I'm not able to go and view it myself, if you come across a decent employee of an auction house, They'll do things like they'll take a really close up photo with a loop, highlight the inclusion that you may not have been able to see from an auction catalogue. So I think auction is almost like retail in that there's a certain amount of trust you can put in certainly established auction houses. I mean, you cannot go wrong with a Sotheby's, a Christie's, a Bonham's, a Phillips, and obviously loads of other ones that we have across the world. Those are just the sort of the bigger names that I'm mentioning. And the employees that work there will most of the time, from what I recall, have a GIA, an FGA, these accreditations that mean that they do really know what they're talking about. And they really, when they assess a piece of jewellery, they are pedantic I mean they're counting the number of stones they're measuring them they're they're doing everything they can to be as honest as possible with you and there are times where if you buy from maybe an auction house that doesn't have quite the same setup that you might buy something that isn't quite what you thought it was going to be that happens but generally buying an auction maybe not in today's market where the auctions are going a little more crazy and so prices being achieved are much higher than most people would have paid in the past you are buying something at a level a price that you are getting a really great price i think buying through auction is a fantastic way of starting a journey into the antique world for example buying at auction i think instills a certain knowledge that the person selling to you is selling to you what they've said it isn't always the case that you will not get what you've paid for i'm a big fan of auctions i think it's a great way for the public to buy well i can definitely say that at the very least you've given me different outlook i think on antiques and collectibles i think i'd give them more of a fair chance than i used to and i guess much like me just because one is old doesn't mean it should be thrown <laughs> out or abandoned i say that in the way. I keep on getting told that I'm old by my kids. So uh, one That's one day, one day, they maybe they'll put me, me up I for auction. <laughs> I don't know if they'll get much, but they'll put me up for auction. For me, yeah. again, it might be a matter of taste. I think to purchase items that are from the Georgian era or even Belle Park or Edwardian era, those are items that have a certain delicacy to them and phenomenal craftsmanship. And also it was a time of opulence, a time where people wore a lot more jewellery. So it comes up at auction more often than other periods. Mm. And you cannot go wrong with that. You are buying an exquisite piece of craftsmanship. 
again, the Georgian era, there was no manufacturing. Everything was handmade. So it's a certain level of jewellery that will always hold its value. Well, good tip to anybody who's listening. Lydia? Thanks so much for joining us today and sharing a little bit of your vast knowledge on the subject. We hope to have you back to share more information. I need more episodes in the future, so I'm going to invite you back in the future. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in again and listening to my podcast. If you found it interesting and entertaining, please do follow me for future episodes and share this podcast with friends, family or colleagues. And please subscribe. If not for yourself, then for me, because I need an ego boost and I need subscribers. Please also leave a comment or question if you have one and I'll do my best to answer or perhaps even make a future episode out of it. This has been Gems and Jokes with Ariel Tivon. Have an awesome day.